Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, this new Lord's Day that we have. We ask that your grace and your mercy would be with the preaching of the word, as well as with the hearing of the word. We pray that you would minister to us through the scriptures, that you would minister to us through the word of God, by the power of the Spirit, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. As we look at a Reformed exposition of Genesis, over these next few weeks, we're going to go through a number of different topical sermons that deal with various themes concerning the main point and the fundamental maxims that Genesis offers us. Now, there are three in the beginning that we need to consider, and I'm going to give you them in reverse order. The first is the last, the last, the first. Let me first explain to you, just briefly, the relationship of God to his covenant people. That is a fundamental maxim for Genesis. A covenant is a pact or agreement between two parties. And it's the fundamental structure that is found all through Genesis for the preservation of the family and the people of God. This we will topically look at after the doctrine of God, but also the medium of his relationship, which is law. Everything that God does, the manner in which God relates, is done by law. A topical survey of the manner in which God uses the perfect reflection of his character and intents will demonstrate that Genesis shows us that law is a main theme. It is by the law that he demonstrates his intent and his will to his covenant people. The Westminster Confession says that the law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience to it, in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul, and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness which he owes to God, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. So God is a God in which he relates to his people by way of covenant, a theme running through the entire book, and the medium by which he establishes this relationship is his character, his law, a reflection of his being. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, and then we will tackle the third maxim. But first let's read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as we spoke about last week, this is the most important verse in the Bible. Everything after this demonstrates and explains this verse. And when we begin to talk about Genesis and looking at Genesis as the fundamental first book of the Bible with the first verse demonstrating to us that God created all things, that he is creator, that he is the sovereign power over the being of all things, then we must also think through the doctrine of God. The first maxim was God's relationship to his covenant people. The second thing we want to remember is that the medium of his relationship is law. But this third is the doctrine of God. What does Genesis say concerning the doctrine of God? All men have some knowledge of God. 
they are at some level convinced that there is a divine being on whom they are dependent and whom they are ultimately responsible. Yet, when we speak about the doctrine of God, we're not simply referring to God's invisible attributes, not just the things in the trees that are clearly seen, not the stars that declare the glory of God, not all of these things that just demonstrate the doctrine of God, but we're also we're also concerned with the idea of special knowledge. It's imperative to always remember that man's special knowledge of God is a gift. The scriptures themselves, which is the special knowledge of God from God to us, is the scriptures. It's not that men simply attain a complete doctrine of God or understanding about God without God's help. It's impossible that that would be the case. As a matter of fact, without God's help, such knowledge is impossible. That's why such knowledge is gained by what we call in theology special revelation. General revelation are the trees and the birds and the rocks and the sticks and the sky and the stars. Atheists look at those things. They see God in them and they hate him for it. All men have some special knowledge of God. But, God specially revealed himself in what we call special revelation in the scriptures itself. It's God's special accommodation of knowledge to our little brains so that we can understand him, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. God isn't physical. He doesn't have arms and eyes and feathers and feet in nostrils and all of these things that the Bible gives him. But the Bible uses these ideas as baby talk to us so that we understand things about him. When we have a young infant, say a year, uh, six months old, eight months old, and the baby is laying there and you walk up to the baby and you go goo goo gaga to the baby, the baby responds to that accommodation. What does goo goo gaga mean? Well, communicatively, it doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't say, I, 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 am, uh, I am the greatest man in the world. Or it doesn't say, hi, I am your mother. Or it doesn't say, you are a cute baby. It doesn't have any of those propositional ideas attached to it. Goo goo gaga simply places the communicative, the relational information between you and the baby so that the baby responds. Starts waving his hands, kicking his feet, starts to smile a little bit, looks at you, wants to grab at you. It is, it is reacting to an accommodation that you make in trying to make a gesture to it. And it understands it as best as he can. So the child understands what you're saying to him in a manner in which is to his level. Gugu Gaga means something to the child. And she or he reaches out to you and wants to give you a hug. The Bible is God's accommodating language to us. It is baby talk to us. It takes human characteristics. It takes accommodating language and places it on a level in which we can understand who God is. It's not that men gained this special knowledge by self-exertion or some high level of dedication or study, nor is this kind of special knowledge something men deserve, which men might think that it is by right or that they should have it. Rather, it's something that God gives. And he doesn't give it universally. 
Unfortunately, and it would make life a lot easier, but unfortunately, God does not place a cosmic billboard in the sky that describes his character so that everybody can see it blinking in the stars, blinking amidst the stars with neon lights. Instead, he gives us the scriptures. And to define God in this manner is simply to distinguish or separate from one another his various attributes. When we analyze God, we're analyzing the idea of God as it lies in our mind. That's why we have to compartmentalize these things into groups or categories so we understand it. Wherever God is in the fullness of his being, he's holy, love, justice, mercy, all of his attributes at the same time. But for us to understand him, we have to compartmentalize these things, place them into categories so we can see what the Bible says about God being holy or what the Bible says about God being love or what the Bible says about God being just or wrathful. How we think about what we know colors our doctrine of God. That means how much we know will dictate how much we know of God. That is why understanding the Bible and the way God intended for his people to understand it is paramount. Otherwise, one will fall into idolatry. People have all sorts of ideas about God. People believe uh, God in one way or another is ultimately like Mr. Potato Head, and I often use that as an analogy. People's conception of God is often like Mr. Potato Head. You pull Mr. Potato Head out of the box... You place on his ears, his eyes, his nose, his mouth, and you put together what you would like God to be like. But God has dictated his character in the scriptures, which means if we do not know the scriptures, then we don't know the God of the scriptures. When we formulate what God says in his word about himself and his attributes, we call this the doctrine of of God. Sometimes we also call it theology proper, the first thing that we go and study concerning God's being. There's nothing really more soothing for the soul than working through the doctrines which surround our great and glorious God. Many times churches will stick on a singular theme of salvation or maybe God is love, but for Christians, for we as Christians, the marrow of the doctrine of God is our doctrinal feast and it is where we come to know God more. That is why in this third fundamental maxim that we must keep in our mind as we go through the reformed exposition of Genesis is that Genesis demonstrates a solid doctrine of God. And what we're going to do is deal with the doctrine of God over the next few weeks as we look at how Genesis dictates to us the doctrine of God in its various ways. This morning, I would like to take uh, a little bit of time and deal with God as the living God. God as the living God in our first look of about ten lessons, ten topical lessons of surveying Genesis in this way. In accommodating language, God is described as speaking, seeing, hearing, resting, breathing, all of these things. When someone speaks, they express thoughts, opinions, or feelings 
orally. In Genesis 1, verse 3, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. In Genesis 17, 15, it says, Then God said to Abraham. God speaks. He speaks to his people. He spoke creation into existence. God also sees. Seeing is to perceive or detect as if by sight, which means perception, thoughtfulness in what they're looking at. God sees things in Genesis. Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord saw this. He saw that men were wicked. In Genesis 29, in verse 31, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. He was moved to pity. Genesis 16, 13, then she called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also here seen him who sees me. God is moved by what he sees. And he is set upon action as a result of what he sees. Because he is a living God. He hears, which hearing is to listen to with attention. Genesis 21 and verse 17. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. God hears. He heard and was moved to act. He is a living God. In being active, God also rests from being active. Freedom from activity or work is resting. Genesis 2, verses 2 to 3. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. God is a living God. He rests. God also breathes. And breathing is to send out by exhaling. Genesis 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The quality that God possesses inherently, he uses to affect the living nature of Adam through his every breath. Even God's breathing is life-giving. Why? Well, because of his self-existence and his being. God existed before the creation of the universe, which is amazing. A massive, mind-bending thought. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was no heavens and earth. God created the heavens and the earth. Before the heavens and the earth, there was no material universe. God existed alone. God necessarily exists. Theologically, we call this necessity self-existence, or aseity, the fancy theological word there. Self-existence. God alone holds the power of being. He doesn't rely on anything other than his own being to exist. And as a matter of fact, he gives existence and being to everything else. He upholds 
all things by the power of his word. And it is unfathomable for us to think about God existing self-existently before the foundations of anything was created. It was simply him. In him, he holds the power of being. And after he created the heavens and the earth and brought them into being, into something that was alive and living, because he is the living God who gives life, he then created the pinnacle of his creation, which was humankind. And he did it according to his likeness and his image. He made them alive. The word create, as God is the great creator, is used 11 times in Genesis, and in chapter 1 and 2, it's used 7 times. Right from the very beginning, God desires his creation to know that he is their source of life. That he is the God who creates. In Genesis 1, 26-27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And this is repeated in a shorter form in Genesis 5, 1 and 2. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. The living God created men after his image. He created them in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the animals. The Creator believed His image was so worthwhile, so glorious, and so wonderful that He imprinted it on the pinnacle of His creation and made them living beings. But they were completely and utterly dependent on the ultimate living being, that is, the living God. This God is alive, and he acts. He not only sees and hears, he not only shows pity, he intrudes into the world with powerful acts, with even human acts, such as eating and wrestling or showing himself. Genesis chapter 12, in verse 17. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Remember, Abram had lied. Sarai was given over to Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted her as a wife. And as the covenant that God made with Abram was going to be, blessing those he would bless, people who blessed Abraham, God would bless, and he would curse those who cursed Abraham or did evil to him. And Pharaoh was plagued by God's power. Disease was given. God controls disease. He's sovereign over everything, including the microscopic elements that make up disease. In Genesis 18 and verse 2, So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Here, if you remember the narrative, three men come. Two are angels. One is the pre-incarnate Christ, or the angel of the Lord, who's come in visiting with his, his friend, Abraham, Abram, and he lifts his eyes, Abram sees the men, and Abraham goes and he worships, he tells Sarai to bake some bread, and they eat together, they have a meal together, and they talk together. God intrudes 
into men's life with human acts. Throughout Genesis, we find the angel of the Lord appearing, appearing to men and instructing them. Genesis 16.7, now the angel of the Lord, which that phrase is used six times throughout Genesis, found her, that is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. The angel of the Lord appeared. Even when dealing with Jacob, he wrestles with him. Genesis 32.24, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And in this breaking of the day, he touched Jacob's hip. And as a result of touching Jacob's hip, he rent it out of the socket. And it says that forever from that time forward, Jacob limped. He wrestled with this man, who again was most likely the angel of the Lord. God intrudes into our daily lives in that way. Genesis 28, 12, and 13, it says that he also intrudes into our dreams. That he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie will give to you and your descendants. So, in looking at the manner and the way that God spoke to the early patriarchs, and worked with them, and spoke to them, and stood with them, and ate with them, and communicated with them, before we had these scriptures, before we had the Bible itself, everything that demonstrates who God is, he spoke with his people. He attended his people, even in a physical manner. But he is a God of revelation. He is a God of the written word. He reveals himself to his people. And throughout the book of Genesis, he reveals himself in a number of different ways. Genesis 12:7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said. Or in Genesis 18:1, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees. He actually showed up. Imagine if you were worshipping and God suddenly showed up. He revealed himself also by visions. Genesis 15.1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying. Genesis 46.2, then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He interacted through visions with his people. He also did that by dreams. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob. In Genesis 31.11, as a matter of fact, God even jumped into some of the dreams of pagan men to warn them of certain things. Genesis 31:24. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob, either good or bad. In a dream. Or to Pharaoh. Genesis 41:25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. So through these ways, God demonstrates himself and reveals himself. As a matter of fact, we even have a little bit of a, a cryptic manner in which people would go and inquire of the Lord. We would all, all, often call that oracles. But in this way, they also went. In Genesis 25, 22, and 23. But the children struggled together within her. 
And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. So she went and she inquired. Where did she go? Not sure. But she went and inquired. And the Lord spoke with her. God is personal and he is living. And Genesis demonstrates that over and over and over. He's personal in demonstrating that by way of analogy. He is spirit. He doesn't have arms. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have feathers. He doesn't have ears to hear. But as Genesis 1-2 says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. God is spirit. And yet, he demonstrates himself in this accommodating language as one who is alive. He wants us to see, to understand, to hear him in his word in a manner in which demonstrates that he's not a dumb idol. And that he actually does things and interacts with us and is part of our life. Idolatry is the exact opposite to that. Genesis 31:35, And she said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of the woman is with me. And he searched but did not find the household gods, the household idols. What were these idols? These were these little statues that they kept in their home in a cupboard. And when they needed something, they would go over to the statues and they would pray to the statues. They would inquire of the statues. And they would often have a seer and the seer would interpret maybe what the response of the idols were. But as we find throughout all of the scriptures that these seers are actually satanically empowered by the devil. So here they are praying to these pieces of wood and pieces of stone. Even Isaiah says, isn't this a silly thing? This man goes out in a wood. He chops down a tree. He takes the tree. He carves out of it an idol. He places it in front of them. Then he goes over to the tree, takes some firewood, puts it down, bakes his bread on it. He goes, isn't that silly? He's worshipping the tree. He's even worshipping his concept of what a god should be. It goes back to Mr. Potato Head. Even concepts of idols are dead and dumb. They can't do anything. He just carved it out of a tree. Laban is looking to pieces of wood and ceramic to get an answer from. God demonstrates himself as opposite to dumb idols that have no power. They have no being. Jesus was very quick to make that distinction and trying to get the people to understand and the Pharisees to understand that God is the living God and that the people who serve that God are living as well. When he says in Matthew 22:32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He is the living God, and he gives life to all the others. And those associated with the God's power in them aren't dead. They're alive as well. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are sitting down the table of the Lord, feasting now. The visions of Christ the visions of God in heaven. And therefore, Jesus says, you are greatly mistaken. Don't associate those who associate with God or God himself with the stupidity of death, of the dumb idol, of that which has no power. We live and move and have our being in him. Living for God, exemplifying the will of God, the life of God in us. 
really that's the basic definition of what religion is all about. People always say, well, I'm religious. I do this, this, and this. You know, they, they think that because they have formed a habit, maybe going to church or doing something religious, that they are religious. But religion really... The basic definition of that is what the catechism begins with. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to join him forever. The living God and that life in us, welling up to good works, welling up to desire. It is living before the living God in accordance with the dictates of his will. Living before him as if his open gaze is on us every moment. The thoughts we have, what we do with our time, the words we speak, think of it. The living God gives all men their being. He gives all of them their being. He knows their thoughts and will ultimately judge them for every intent they ever had, for every word they spoke, for every action they took. Those who encounter the living God, the life of God is now implanted in the soul of man. And thus, they alone are able to please him follow him because the spirit is moving them. He moves in us to aid us, to help us. The fall, as we'll look when we hit Genesis 3, the fall sets the context in which there's a need for new life. God had given Adam life and he was enjoying the life that God gave him in the garden. His communion with the, the living God and the text even says that God walked with him in the cool of the day. Whatever that means. That's amazing that God would spend time with Adam in that way. But then the fall occurred, and that was removed, that communion. And as a result, the new life principle has to be implanted. And that new life is the life that the Christian encounters with the living God. And it's the new principle or effect of the work of the Spirit of God applying the work of the Redeemer to us who comes to crush the head of the serpent. That Genesis also tells us. Genesis 3.15. It's the before gospel. That the seed of the woman will come to crush the head of the serpent. It's the gospel that was given to Adam and Eve. That God would work for their benefit even after the fall. That they would have new life. And Eve was so excited that that was the case. That in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 she said... The Lord has brought a man. The man. This is the one she thought. This is the one they just told her a few seconds ago or a few verses ago. This is the one whom the Lord promised. They were excited. She was excited by faith that new life was coming. She remembered what she had. No doubt Adam as well. And she was excited to see the new life that was coming. For the Christian, Abram, Abraham is used in Romans and Galatians as the father of our faith. Genesis houses the principal example of new life, that it was credited to him as righteousness, as we read. God instills that in men. And he demonstrates it in lengthy historical narratives to show how the living God interacts with these people whom he's given new life. He interacts with his creation to motivate them to holiness, to good works. Pharaoh was not a follower of God. Abram was. Laban was not a follower of God. Jacob was. 
there's always this, uh, this dichotomy in between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent demonstrated all through the narratives of Genesis that show how God deals with these two groups of people. God interacts with them. God is the living God. He comes, he changes men, he works in their heart, and he even places restraints of power on sin itself. Abimelech didn't touch Jacob's wife, remember. And, he, and God specifically told him, the reason that you did do that is because I did it. I stopped you from doing it for Isaac's wife. As a matter of fact, Genesis houses sections or groups of genealogical lines that flow forth from the seed of the woman in contrast to the seed of the serpent and the unregenerate line. And Genesis will even make <clears throat> the note that once these lines mixed, bad things happened. God is the living God and plants life in his people and that life motivates them towards a burning affection and a burning desire to serve him and to please their creator, their God, and their father. And the New Testament, in echoing everything that's contained in Genesis, does that. It echoes those same things. That's why Jesus rebuked Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 10, when he said, you're a teacher of Israel, you don't understand these things? This, this principle of being born again, you think this is a New Testament idea? This is something that's just come out on the scene? This is old stuff. This is Old Testament stuff. This is what God has forever been doing. If it was a New Testament idea, Paul is a nitwit for using Abraham as the father of our faith. He should have used somebody like Peter or maybe James, but he didn't do that. He began right from the beginning, demonstrating that these things are the same. The living God intrudes on men in Genesis, and he does in John as well. But this is how he's always been. The New Testament, in recognizing this implanted life, echoes that life principle. The life of God in the soul of men. John three fourteen and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In John ten twenty eight, And I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. The living God, who is eternal, when he gives life, it cannot be anything but eternal life. In John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. What is it? That you may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what life is all about. That's what Genesis is all about. Following the living God. And the living, eternal God places that eternal life in us through the power of the Spirit's work. That's why Christ calls it living water that flows out from us. Living water that's given to us, to those who are born again. John 6, 69 says, Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ is the Son of the living God. The Redeemer of the living God. To initiate the ultimate personal experience and relationship that the living God desires to have with his people. It wasn't that Abraham got second best. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The promises are the same. The gospel was preached to Abraham, Paul says. But 
he accomplishes this in such a unique manner that not only do we see in the narratives of the New Testament that Christ dies, we see the fulfillment of everything that was promised to Abraham in what Jesus does. Jesus comes and he dies. He lives, he dies, he's buried, and he exemplifies and stamps his work with the approval of God, which is the resurrection. The life which flows from the resurrection. We would not have life if the Messiah was dead. We have life because the Messiah, who is life, the way, the truth, and the life, was raised from the dead. Resurrection equals life. It is life. The living God raised Christ from the dead because salvation and victory over death is accomplished by the principle of God's necessary being, that he gives life because he is life. And not everybody has this life. And Christ says most people don't have this life. And it must be given to them. And it must be given to them by God. Otherwise, men remain dead in sin. But for those that do have this life, the scripture says they shall be called, that's you and I if we have this life in us, they shall be called sons of the living God. We get to be sons of the living God. Thus God's people experience the indwelling power of God and a personal covenantal relationship with him through the only means of salvation. There's only one way. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's through Christ. And if we have that principle, the scriptures tell us, such as 2 Corinthians 6.16, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Just as God is a living God who interacts with us, who according to the scriptures will dwell in us and walk with us, restoring everything that Adam lost in Christ, he demonstrates himself to be the living God. If one encounters the living God with that implanted life principle, then their lives reflect that. We hear all sorts of people say, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, Jesus says, all you have to do is look at the tree. What kind of fruit do they bear? What do they like? What do they enjoy? What goes in? What comes out? You can tell rather quickly. If one, though, encounters the living God with that implanted life, their lives will reflect it. Their lives demonstrate the power of the living God to change them from being adulterers and fornicators, those unclean, those who are lewd, idolaters, manipulators, haters, contentious, jealous, angry, selfish, envious, murdered, drunkards, of which Paul says, I tell you, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't. They have to be changed and demonstrate that change. And religion is drudgery for the wicked. It's drudgery for them. They see it as a crutch because they don't have any life. It's something that simply satisfies them for a moment. They live like the devil all week long, come to church and think that maybe putting money in the basket or praying a prayer or hearing a sermon will suddenly change them or give them some comfort from what their life regularly is throughout the rest of the week. 
But we have to ask, you know, how could our, how could our own personal devotions be boring if we're really coming into contact with the living God? If we have rivers of living water flowing from us, how could we say our devotions are boring or our prayer time is boring? How could church be boring if you're coming into contact with the living God of the universe who created you? Genesis then not only furnishes us with the doctrine of the living God, but demonstrates through the entirety of the book the immense importance of following in the line of God's chosen people, instilled with new life. God is the living God who gives his people life. And that's over against those who trust in dumb idols, mute idols who can't do anything. So ask yourself, what do you trust? When Laban had a problem, he ran to his household gods. What do you run to? Pharaoh turned to his priests who practiced magic arts. What do you turn to? Before Abraham was converted, he was a worshiper of pagan idols and Ur of the Chaldeans. He was an idolater. Trust me, in looking at the life of Abraham, he was trusting dumb idols. And then he encountered the living God. And he changed. There was a radical change in him as a result. He left his father's house, which was unthinkable. Many still today worship idols. They turn to their jobs. It's an idol. can be an idol. They turn to their friends, their relatives, parents, children, money, big toys like cars or houses or things. But sanctification, justification, new life is only found in the living God. He alone is the one who can satisfy. And that is what Genesis is going to teach us. He is the God who interacts with us. He is the God who instills life in us. This is what God is trying to communicate to us. This is what he does right from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's telling us that he holds that life principle. And he bids us to read the rest of that book to find out how he does that. So leave here this morning contemplating your standing, your relationship with the living God. Everyone that has ever lived or will ever live has a relationship with the living God. As a matter of fact, whether they're saved, whether they're lost, God upholds them. God upholds them even when they sin. He still holds together the cells of their bodies. He still holds together the drugs that they shoot into their arm. He still holds together the drinks that they drink. Yet, everyone has a relationship with him. What is your relationship with the living God? Does it reflect the faith of Abraham? Does it reflect... Laban's silliness to run to pieces of wood for answers. What is your relationship to the living God? Do you have the new life implanted in you? Are you exemplifying that? Are you demonstrating that your chief end is to glorify the living God and to enjoy him? Is that what you enjoy? God bids us in his word throughout the book of Genesis to consider who he is and who we are in relationship to him. Let's pray together and ask that the Lord would bless his word to our heart.
Mighty God, we thank you for the very first verse of the Bible, which is most important. We thank you, Lord, that you are the creator of heaven and earth and us. We are thankful that everything that's contained in the book of Genesis that we simply surveyed in connection with the living God, the God who works and moves and sees and hears and intrudes into our life for good, that even the New Testament and all through it is demonstrating the same truths that's found in the book of Genesis. We thank you, Almighty God, that Christ in his clarity and his words to us demonstrate that you are the God of the living, that you implant that new life, give that new life, uphold that new life, nurture that new life by the power of your spirit. And we so pray, Lord, for all of us here this morning, that our relationship with you would be one in which we so desire you and so run after you that you are our all. We so pray that you would impress and imprint on our minds Genesis 1.1, the most important verse in all of the Bible. You are the living God, the eternally existent, necessary being of which everything else holds together. Help us realize we are but frames made of dust. Help us to be like Abraham. Help us to fall before you and worship you and love you and receive the fatness of our soul from your being. We so pray these things in the power of the Holy Spirit and ask that you would effectuate them throughout this day and throughout this week as we contemplate these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton, that's E-D- M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.